is Wednesday, January 24th, 2018, time for episode 44 of the Barnhart Podcast. I have been otherwise occupied this week, so I have no opening. Um, what's new in the world, Anne? Well, um, you know, Bergolian antics, FBI antics, there's, there's always plenty going on, plenty to talk about, but I reckon um, we'll probably focus more on the Bergolian antics as we're still waiting. Uh, the release, the memo thing, and then the FBI thing is still very much developing, and it's just it's just sit and watch at this point. Um, I heard so, some rumor about a secret society in the FBI. Is there any oh, chance yes. that it's tied in with Bergoglio? Oh, I think I think it's all connected. I mean, I think that the you know the fact that Peter's Pence was donating millions of dollars to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and obviously Soros is a huge player in all this. Yeah, I, I actually do think it's it's all connected, uh, even even on an earthly level. And then as I've as we've discussed many many times, if you pull your focus back far enough and get and get the big picture, what you then realize is that Satan is is at the root of basically all of these dynamics, all the dynamics in the church, all the dynamics in um, government, finance, Hollywood, ev- entertainment, everything. It's all it's all coming from the same from the same root, um, which which is Satan, and and that's what so many people miss. And I'm I'm kind of half laughing as you're saying this because I I was completely tongue firmly planted in cheek suggesting a, a connection between the FBI scandal and Bergoglio, uh, because I've not been paying attention to the news for the most part over the last week or so, and then yeah, that was a very logical connection. It's like you know. That makes complete sense. I was I, right. I, I was just being completely goofy and 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 uh, making the the goofy conspiracy theory connection. But you know, now that you say that, it makes sense. Darn it! I, oh no, I shouldn't, no, the, I shouldn't the, the say things like this because it's just it's just going to depress me. About the only conspiracy theories that are left are like the shape shifting lizard Jews and all of that stuff. That is about the only thing. Everything else, it's just you just sit and shake your head and and say, well, it's all happening. Um, better stay confessed. And as with me, I'm I'm taking I'm taking one Peter five very seriously. And uh, be sober. Don't even don't even be buzzed. Don't even have wine with your dinner because you have no idea when you've got to be ready to go when something supernatural is going to happen. It's that bad. It's literally that bad. And in terms of Bergolian antics this week, it just, it just continues apace and it just keeps getting worse. Well, speaking of one Peter five, that's like one of the few websites I actually looked at and on the topic of, of selling out the Chinese, that was one of the articles I already had written down as a possible link. Yeah. I mean, it's, what what they've done is absolutely it's stunning and it's not going to get any play and obviously in the mainstream media it's going to get very little play in in even the the quote unquote right or you know neocon neo-catholic media um but what bergoglio what anti-pope bergoglio and um the the evil wicked um secretary of state Perilin, and people are talking that Perilin, you know he's He's like Bergoglio, except he's probably got about 40 more IQ points on him. And people are talking that Perilin definitely wants to be the next <laughs> pope, anti-pope, you know. I mean, d- it depends on the on the sequence of events, as we've gone over before. If Bergoglio dies in his soup or um, f- resigns in as much as anybody can resign from the anti-papacy, but you, goes away, you know what I mean. And... Pope Benedict the Sixteenth Ratzinger is still alive. Um, it's it's just going to be another anti-pope. That's why that's why all of this 
business of getting these processions right and the order of events right and and pinning down why exactly it is that Bergoglio is an anti-pope. You have to have it for the right reason. I know just beating this horse again, but it can't be said too much. It isn't the fact that Bergoglio is a heretic. It, it, that's not germane. It has to do with Ratzinger. Everything revolves around Ratzinger and Ratzinger's um, attempted partial abdication, bifurcation of the papacy. That rendered the whole thing invalid. Ratzinger never stopped being the pope ever. And remember, that all that all predates the the quote unquote faux election and elevation of Bergoglio by weeks. You know, Ratzinger claimed that he was abdicating and and vacating the sea or partially vacating the sea, that he was going to give up the administrative munus of the Petrine office. Um, he did that allegedly on the 28th of February. And then, of course, Bergoglio isn't faux elected until the 13th. Therefore, Bergoglio's heresy, as massive as it is, has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with it, whether or not Bergoglio is the Pope. People keep focusing on this, and it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. You have to get the reason right. Um, and so, um, what, what was, where were we going with this? What was your question? I always get off on this. See, it's totally my tangent. It's totally my thing. And just any time, I just feel the need to reiterate this because there are just so many people who are being scandalized. Something and about selling out the Chinese, I think. Selling out the Chinese. Okay, so what anti-Pope Bergoglio the, has done. The Chinese to bishops, the, to be To, to the be Chinese specific. bishops. Okay, so the first point you need to understand about China is that a lot of people look at this, and not that numbers matter, okay? Not that numbers matter, but... People look and say, "Well, how, ma how many Chinese Catholics are there? I mean, it's a it's a minuscule percentage of the population, and that's absolutely true. It is a minuscule percentage of the Chinese population um, who weren't martyred." Right, right. Now, here's the thing: the Chinese population is so massive that groups that constitute a minuscule percentage are actually massive in number. To illustrate this point, there are more Chinese Catholics than the total population of Italy. There's about 60 million people, six zero, 60 million people in Italy. And there are there's something north of 65 million Catholics in China. And so, yeah, relative that, to that's like one two point, Californias plus all of the immigrants. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So, relative to one point, whatever four billion or whatever it is, yeah, if you work that out on a on a percentage basis, it's very very small. But you're still talking about sixty five million people, and just I mean, imagine the the potential for growth. Obviously. Um, in terms of of the church in China, and so don't don't fall into that trap thinking, well, you know, it's just a handful of people. No, it's not just a handful of people. It's an enormous number of people. What Bergoglio and Perelin and all of his toadies have have now just done to the Chinese Catholics, and what they're doing is, if you don't understand the, the dynamics of the Catholic Church in in China, in a nutshell. There's there's 
basically two. There's the real true church, which is underground. And then there's what's called, you know, like the people's state Catholic church. Chinese Patriotic Association, if I'm not mistaken. Chinese Patriotic Association. Could you get a more sinister name than that? The government Catholic Patriotic Association. I knew it was CPA, but I was, I think it's Catholic Patriotic Association. Still super duper duper creepy Catholic Patriotic Association. The red Chinese government owns and operates this thing. It, it, it's them. The Chinese red communist government appoints the bishops into this so-called state Catholic church. Everybody's understood this whole thing is BS. It's complete BS. And there are so many Chinese Catholics, lay people, priests, bishops, who have been disappeared, who have been killed, who have been imprisoned and presumably tortured for, for decades now. People who have laid down their lives and suffered and suffered for the, for the truth of, of, you know, the church and not, and not capitulating to this evil communist front. Well, guess what Bergoglio, Perelin, and the rest of this anti-church crowd are doing? They are now telling the actual authentic Catholic bishops underground in China that they have to stand aside, that they have to stand aside and allow the fake, phony um, Catholic people's cult, state, church, fake bishops to take their place. This is a sellout. I mean, this is, I think this is worse than what... uh, Paul VI Montini did to Cardinal Menzenti in Hungary. He, bas- he basically sold the guy out and sold out this Hungarian um, this Hungarian cardinal who then ended up being thrown in the gulag. I mean, what what this is doing to to the church in China is just absolutely, completely, totally hamstringing it. Well, of course, because um, Bergoglio is all about personal power. He's clearly, clearly. Um, Marxist. Look, look at when he went to Bolivia and Evo Morales, who is a confessing communist, gave him the, the crucifix of our Lord on a hammer and sickle. Look at his interactions with the Castro brothers and the Castro regime in Cuba and on and on and on. Bergoglio admires communism, I think, because all of these tyrannical thugs that, you know, the more the more tyrannical a regime is, the more that they admire each other, you know. So um, Bergoglio looks at the power dynamics of something like this fake Chinese uh, communist Catholic church. And he looks at that and says, yeah, that's awesome. That's what that's what I want to do. And, and by the way, all of the bishops in the Catholic Patriotic Association, People's Democratic Church, or what's happening now, by policy, they have all been um, labeled as schismatic and excommunicated because they are not in union with Rome. Yeah. And so that's probably the biggest scandal of what's happening right now is that a duly appointed bishop from, from the official uh, papacy of, of Benedict XVI who was appointed to a see in China has now been told you will step down and somebody who has been formally declared excommunicated and schismatic mm-hmm. will take your, your see now. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely stunning, but it's all of a piece. And it goes back to the satanic agenda, 
which anti-Pope Bergoglio is so obviously implementing and is fully on board with. It's it's the it's the chaotic decentralization of power and the essentially the destruction of the office of the papacy and and the Roman Curia. Um, as ironic as that sounds, because you know Bergoglio rants and ra- raves and rages about his power as quote-unquote pope, which of course he isn't pope, but he, he, I'm in charge here, everybody has to do what I say, um, there's the rumors, or the rumor mill is really, really picking up that he's getting ready to issue a, an ultimatum where every priest, bishop, and cardinal has to sign a loyalty oath to Bergoglio the man and Bergoglio's magisterium or else be excommunicated and automatically suspended. Now, we'll, we'll see if this comes to pass, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. It would not surprise me at all if he does this. So, I mean, but this is so typical of what these thugs do. And they not only do they, they not, um, they don't have any problem with hypocrisy. They realize that they're hypocrites and they, they luxuriate in it precisely because hypocrisy is is a manifestation of mendacity. And as we've discussed before, they lie without any pangs of conscience whatsoever. And they, they lie with complete facility. And they actually get off on the fact, they get off on the fact that they can lie to people's faces, be completely two-faced, be completely mendacious, be completely hypocritical, and all of these willing thralls will bow down, will justify it, will ratify it, um, et cetera, et cetera. They, they get off on watching people capitulate to enable and support them, even in their obvious, blatant mendacity and hypocrisy. It's all, it's all of a piece. So um, the fact that Bergoglio rants and raves about his his quote unquote power as as pope, which again he isn't the pope, but that's kind of the point. Um, it, it's the fact that he he's doing that and then simultaneously trying to destroy the papacy. Look, a, as we've discussed, everything about this anti-Pope Bergoglio situation. Look at what people look at how people are dealing with it and how people are are trying to process it and justify it. Now I'm talking about people on, on the trad right. OK, look at these people who absolutely categorically refuse to acknowledge that Ratzinger's um, attempted bifurcation partial abdication was substantially erroneous and thus his resignation was invalid. And they keep saying Bergoglio is the Pope, Bergoglio is the Pope. We hate his guts, he's evil, he's terrible, he's destroying the church, but Bergoglio is the Pope. Now, look at their rhetoric. Look at everything they're saying and everything that they're doing. They're having to talk about now and get ready for that. I mean, it's it's already out there, but get ready for this to become more and more and more prevalent. There are people who just a, a few short years ago defended uh, papal infallibility, Vatican one, and I mean this this was just papal infallibility. This is this is this is non-negotiable. This is just non-negotiable. Now, granted, you have to understand what exactly is meant by papal infallibility, but Bergoglio clearly shreds it. Clearly shreds it. So now, what these people are saying, I'm talking about trads now. 
intellectuals, academics, just anybody, pundits out there on the internet. They're saying, okay, guys, we're clearly going to have to rethink um, papal infallibility. We're going to have to rethink Vatican I. In fact, we're going to have to rethink the entire notion of the papacy itself. Look at this. Look at the fruit of this. Satan has set the chessboard so that now even people on the trad right, even people on the trad right are tearing down the papacy. They themselves on the trad right are tearing down the papacy because it's the only way that they continue, they can continue to hold this false premise of Bergoglio being the pope in their mind. The only way you can you can justify Bergoglio or explain Bergoglio as the quote unquote vicar of Christ is if is if you yourself systematically tear down the papacy and essentially say essentially say that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he made the promise that he would specifically pray for Peter and his successors, and that the Petrine Sea would be specifically protected with a supernatural protection, that he was either mistaken or lying. And if our Lord was either mistaken or lying, then he's not God. And if he's not God, then we're not saved. And if we're not saved, there's no church, and just just forget everything. Forget everything. I guess one of the counter-arguments would be, though, and, and and just just to there there are a lot of traditional Catholics listening to this, and, and we'll get mm-hmm. to that topic a little bit later. Um, who would say, okay, I understand what you're saying, Anne, but let's just you know the the, the topic of whether or not uh, Benedict intended to bifurcate or intended to resign. If you if you take the the track that uh, Bergoglio is the Pope, has he done anything which is would explicitly contradict? Uh, the protection of infallibility. Certainly, absolutely. And I think at this point, it, it requires the wolf, willful suspension of disbelief to think that what Bergoglio has done and continues to do, which is the systematic destruction. I mean, who was it? Uh, the professor, was it Professor Seifert who was fired? Um, he said that this is nothing less than the total upending of of any sort of objective Catholic morality, objective moral norms, objective truth. Um, the, the the euphemism that I use, and and it's it's harsh, but it's accurate, is what Bergoglio is doing is he is systematically raping the bride of Christ and beating her into a coma, day in and day out. If this constitutes, if this constitutes um, the protection. That our Lord would say, okay, I'm going to set up this this office that is specially protected because somebody has to be in charge. And again, this is this is like the last hurdle that I had to I had to clear as I converted, um, and it was explained to me in a completely secular context by, in fact, a, a confessed atheist. We're talking about you know management techniques, specifically managing a feed yard, and he said somebody has to be in charge, and that's absolutely true. Everybody knows this. If you have any sort of a paradigm where nobody's in charge, it will eventually descend into chaos. The buck has to stop, stop with somebody. Somebody has to be in charge. Okay, that that's the premise of the papacy. You have this central authority who has a supernatural protection. And this, this individual, this holder of this office, is going to prevent um, errors about matters of faith and morals being promulgated. It's obvious that that Bergoglio does not conform to that. 
And we have 2,000 years of history of, you know, absolute scoundrels, um, Alexander VI, Borghese, and all, all, all these people, you know, these popes who were fornicators and blah, and, you know, financially corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. They never, ever did anything, even remotely approaching anything that Bergoglio has done. Why is if 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 Bergoglio conforms to the notion of of papal infallibility and this special protection, why in the world didn't all this happen? You know, centuries if not millennia ago. If if this is in bounds and, and Satan knows the rules, if Bergoglio is the Pope and everything he's done is in bounds, how in the world has it been that this hasn't happened? before why would satan knowing the knowing all the rules backwards and forwards knowing exactly the line that he could go to knowing exactly what he could get away with why didn't he just do this why didn't he do this i'm sure he wanted to from the time of saint peter and linus and everybody in between certainly but in, in but, term, he, but in, he couldn't because Bergoglio, what what satan needed was a man who everyone thought was the pope but who wasn't the Pope? Well, he also um, and he also needs permission from God to do anything, and, right? and that's, certainly, that, certainly. that's something that uh, if you read any book about exorcisms or talk to exorcists, they will tell you that you know the, the power of Satan is limited by the permission of God, and God permits Satan to achieve certain things and do certain things for the edification of the rest of us. And when bad people get into high positions of power, ultimately it is for the edification of those who actually still maintain the faith. And getting back to the the um, the argument of well has. Certainly, there are many things that Bergoglio has, has signed his name to that are contrary to the faith, but has any of it been done under the formula of infallibility? Um, I would have to say yes at this point because, you know, Amoris Letizia and then the fact uh, just not too terribly long ago, just a matter of weeks ago, it, the letter in which Bergoglio said to the Argentinian bishops, this is the correct interpretation, which is the the interpretation that completely upends the entire moral edifice of the church. He said, this is part of my authentic magisterium. Um, at, at this point, again, I think it requires the willful suspension of disbelief to think that what Bergoglio is doing is, quote unquote, inbounds in terms of um, – the, the office of the papacy. I think this is all just confirming set after confirming set after confirming set of the fact that Bergoglio isn't the Pope. And you, you can see it by what he's doing, by what he's attempting to do. Um, and, but that, but again, reiterating the fact that Bergoglio is an arch heretic is not, is not germane to whether or not he's the Pope. It's Ratzinger. You have to get that straight. It's Ratzinger. But what Bergoglio's heresy does is just confirm something here is wrong. And when I, when I first uh, published on this um, in, what was it, June of 2016, um, Vocem Alienorum, that was the title of the essay. And that's the word, the voice of a stranger. That, that Those are the words that our Lord uses in the Good Shepherd Discourse. So, I mean, look at the D Good Shepherd Discourse. Our Lord specifically tells us that we we can look and see and hear, and we, the sheep, the lowly, lowly sheep, we are expected to discern um, 
who is the wolf, who is the faithless hireling, and who is the, the true voice of the good shepherd. And we will be held individually to account for this. And so I can't help but think that, you know, when all is revealed, that our Lord is going to look down at people and say, did you honestly think, did you honestly think, looking at this man Bergoglio and looking at what he was doing, did you honestly think that this guy was my vicar? Do you honestly believe that I would I would do this to you? Now, I can chastise you, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, the St. John Eudas quote, I've been posting that for years. Um, the worst chastisement that the Lord can send upon his people is is bad clergy and bad prelates. And obviously, I think what this is, is we've, we do have a bad pope because we have Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger, who is, who is, you know, caused all this and enabled all of this. And, and yes, absolutely has some problems in his own personal metaphysics and all that. We've talked about that. I think talking about, you know, the the divine will permitting things like this to happen. I think that what Bergoglio is, is God saying, look, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you what it, what it would look like if one of these modernist heretics got, got in and got, got control of the church. I'm going to show you what the, what the logical progression and what, what the end of this looks like. If, if you will, if you were to have a modernist arch heretic pope. Do, uh, now I'm not I'm not going to go back on my promise to you. I am not going to destroy the Petrine Sea. I'm not going to withdraw the supernatural negative protection, which he hasn't in terms of Ratzinger cuz Ratzinger's sitting there silent. Ratzinger's the wor- worst pope ever, but he's not he hasn't actively tried to destroy the church. He's just made the biggest mistake in the history of the church. Um well, second to well, it is in the history of the church. I was going to say Judas Iscariot, but and and Peter's denial, but that that's that's before Pentecost. See, that's before Pentecost. So since Pentecost, I think this is probably the biggest mistake that's ever been made in the history of the church. Yeah, but Peter but, did not lack grace of state when he was made the rock on which the built the church was going to be built. So the fact that he then immediately denied Christ during the Passion. I see that more of an al- analogy of what's happening here. Peter denying Christ and, you know, committing an outward heresy, uh, de facto, you know, whatever level you want to ascribe this in terms of theological precision, he denied Christ. And he that didn't make him not the Pope anymore. And and this is, the, the reason I stress this is both because there are people who don't fully believe what you're saying. And I'm, I'm in an, in, in a state where I don't, I, I, I don't fully believe that, that, uh, with, with certainty that, that Benedict is still the Pope. I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's an open question. It's clearly a mess. That's for sure. <laughs> and I, I certainly have an open mind toward the possibility that Francis could be an anti-Pope. But the thing that I look at is say, well, okay, has he ever said anything infallible, which cannot be true? And in certainly saying something, this is my official magisterium. Okay, well, look at John the 22nd. He said something that clearly was wrong as his official teaching, official magisterium, that was then contradicted by a later pope. But he didn't do anything infallible. So, yes, it's a big, giant mess because we're supposed to look at what the pope says as a theologian, as something you can rely on. We haven't had that for a while, Um, certainly not with Bergoglio and questionably going back to the popes before that. Um, and, and I don't just mean to the mid fifties. I mean, there have been things that were said from the 1500s on where you had kind of have to scratch your head and saying how, how serious, you know, what, what, what's going on here. 
um, the 60s didn't happen by accident. It's not like we were mm-hmm. all of a sudden perfect and then boop, we forgot the faith. But I'm getting well, ahead of myself on the notes here. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. But I think that um, I think that at this point, the thing what he has said and what he has done, and I, and I call this from the very beginning, what this guy is saying and doing is going to be used by the enemies of Christ in his holy church oh, until doubt. until our Lord returns in glory to, to cudgel and beat the church into the ground. Um, and I just don't see how at this point, and I'm, I'm, I keep rolling this essay around in my head, but what it's going to be about and is I think – the problem is that so many people in this culture today have, for lack of a better word, daddy issues or abandonment issues. And so, you know, if you were, if your father abandoned your family, which a lot of people have experienced that, if, you're, if your mother likewise was no damn good and abandoned you or something like that, if you've been abandoned by a spouse, if you've been abandoned by every romantic relationship you've ever had, if you've been abandoned by this, abandoned by that, which most people at this point have. There are very few people who can say they have a completely stable family life, um, never, never had a bad, never had a bad relationship, never had a bad romantic relationship, never had a bad friendship, anything like that. Um, I think pretty much everybody in this culture anymore in the West has intense abandonment issues. And so they're looking at Bergoglio and vis-a-vis the papacy and our Lord's promises. And they're just saying, well, shrug your shoulders. This is just yet another example of me being abandoned. And, you know, you have to make the precision here. Even if everyone else, every other relationship in your life, your parents, your spouse, your children, your friends, everyone, your government, everything, if everyone in your life has abandoned you, you cannot, you cannot map that onto Jesus Christ. He is never going to abandon you. He has not lied to us. He's not going to throw up his hands and say, pardon me, but F you, I'm, I'm leaving you to your own devices. No matter how messed up we are, no matter how bad the infiltration of the church is, no matter any of these things, he is not going to break his promise. He is not going to abandon his church. Now, his divine will can can permit this, uh, and obviously does, permits this Bergolian mess to be happening. But to me, it's almost a test of your faith. And if, if he returns in glory in five minutes, I think he's going to look at a lot of people and say, how could you have lost faith in me? How could you have believed that I would abandon you and that I would and that I would withdraw, that I would withdraw my protection, that I would call off the Holy Ghost and just and just abandon my church, my bride, my body. The 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 only means by which men can be saved. How can you believe that I would abandon that I would abandon you. And because, so I think because that's we have a, the a teaching, lot of what the problem is. We have the teaching in the scriptures and, and you know, I, I could make another joke about being a Catholic who knows the scriptures, but honestly I binged it here. <laughs> so I, I, I went through a search engine. Uh, the quote from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach a gospel to you besides that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. So mm-hmm. the idea being that if, if I hear somebody saying, 
whether it's a bishop in white who is in Rome or somebody local or some Yahoo anywhere else, um, say, preaching something that is not consistent with the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. then I ignore it because the faith cannot change. It cannot change, period. Right. It doesn't matter whether it's it's a you know somebody following in the in the denial of Peter or following in the righteous path of Peter, nobody can change the faith. Certainly, but this goes back to what I was talking about before about how um, you know let let's say Bergoglio is dead in his soup and um, Pope Benedict Ratzinger dies thirty minutes later, a conclave is called and let's call him Pope Leo the Fourteenth or you know <laughs> which means someone super 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 orthodox, wonderful wonderful Pope is put on is put on the Petrine Sea. You understand that as as all of us on the right have been just tearing down the papacy and saying because of Bergoglio it's no big deal and it doesn't matter because that's the only way you can reconcile all this. When you get Leo the Fourteenth, and assuming that there isn't any you know supernatural intervention, the entire world is going to take all of our own words throughout all of this and come back and use them against us. Don't don't think that that this isn't all part of the satanic plan. Okay, let's put Bergoglio in front of you. You are all going to tear down the notion of the papacy with your own words and say it doesn't matter. You don't have to listen to him. It never really mattered anyway. We had a we had a um a hyperinflated sense of what the papacy actually was. So when when a true orthodox strong vicar of Christ ascends to the sea, um all, all of the enemies of Christ in his church, they're going to use our own words and our own arguments about Bergoglio against us. Um, and so it, you're just, it, he's, Satan's got us. I mean, he's just, he's just got us in checkmate. And the only way out of it, it seems to me, is the truth. Go ahead, Super I mean, Nerd. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, and, and again, mm-hmm. this, get, this gets to the topic of how well do you know your faith? Uh, the mm-hmm. people who are using the the arguments and tactics of the left to defend um, what they understand to be, or what they don't understand uh, as as of uh, the faith at this moment, uh, the, the people on the right who are making these arguments, we've got to follow the Pope. They are setting the stage for denying a Leo the Fourteenth in the future. Does yep. that mean that we follow that in the, in the future? We look <laughs> at these people and say, look, they they were doing the best they could. They were scandalized. They honestly didn't know the faith. I mean, to the degree, I mean, all of us can say that we don't know the faith to the degree that it could be understood. But it's it's like a, we've made this this argument in politics as, in, before. I mean, in several many podcasts back, I, I made a criticism. Well, I was echoing the the criticism of somebody, uh, a podcaster I listened to, who was saying that the, the whole you know error of, of the alt right uh, right now is the fact that they are using the tools of, of identity politics of the left to try and make some counter argument against, as opposed to an authentic philosophically consistent argument that should destroy the left. So they're, they're, they're using inferior tools, which are meant to destroy them as their basis. And I'm sure there are some many good meaning traditional Catholics and, and bloggers and, 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 uh, journalists who are trying to fight for something positive but using the wrong way of going about it. And are they setting a trap that can be used against them later? Yes. But yes. I don't think you can say just because they're doing something less than perfect now is definitely going to set the, the trap for a future Leo the 14th to have no effect whatsoever. Well, certainly, I mean, the lesson in all of this is that none of us can can foresee how this this absolutely amazing drama 
is is going to play out. I mean, who who could have called any of this? I, I mean, it's funny. I think about where I was five years ago today, and I know exactly what I was doing and so on and so forth. There is no way, no way I could have foreseen any of this. And another point that I want to make real quick, and I think, I think Super Nerd, maybe you made this point to me uh, like a couple years ago or something. I can't remember. This isn't my own point. Some, somebody pointed this out to me in terms of scandal. And, and this, is, this was quite a light bulb that went on over my head. Um, you know, our Lord says, woe to those who cause scandal. But what you also have to remember is that if you allow yourself to be scandalized, that means that there was some deficiency in faith on your part. So, for example, when, um, you know, these sodomite priests, for example, are manifesting, are molesting children, so on and so forth, and people are scandalized, and let's say they leave the church. Um, absolutely, woe to the sodomite priest, obviously, obviously. But also, are, are we to believe that the person who abandons the church and either apostatizes or starts going to Protestant heretic, super fun rock band nonsense, um, are, are we actually to believe that they have no culpability? Shouldn't they have had a faith sufficient to understand the difference between a sodomite priest and Jesus Christ and his holy, spotless, impeccable bride, the church. I mean, it isn't, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nuanced distinction, certainly. Um, and we can tell that because right now, so few people seem to get it, that there is this difference, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, between the, the spotless bride of Christ, the church as a, as a supernatural edifice and entity, and the the earthly institutional church, um, but it, it, it's not that hard to understand. It's not that hard to understand that the sodomite priest isn't Jesus. Uh, and I think again that this is largely a a function of people not having the uh, personal relationship with Jesus Christ or a, um, a deep in, understanding in the of faith. Sense. Exactly, or deep deep inner faith. But in terms of understanding and remembering and 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 relating to our Lord as he is, which is a person. A per, he is the personal deity. The triune Godhead is a personal deity. Um, if you just relate to our Lord as a legal code, as a philosophy, as a set of liturgical rubrics, um, and there's no personal relationship there, and you don't think about our Lord as a person, and you don't talk to him as a person, and you don't think about his passion as as a person, God, true God and true man, then what happens is that you you start confusing him for other people. Now think about this. Um, you know, I, I know I know super nerd. Is it possible for me to confuse super nerd with some other man that I might be acquainted with? Well, no. Super nerd is super nerd. Super nerd isn't, you know, my neighbor at the restaurant 
down the block. Super nerd is not the priest at the parish that I go to mass at. At I mean, a philosophical when, level, that's correct. But I was going yeah. to interject. <laughs> it depends upon what happened to your prescription. And uh, if, if I have a cold and, and you don't recognize my voice or any other number of uh, sensory perceptible attributes uh, that I have that may be mistaken or somebody else can m- mimic perfectly. So. Well, okay, I'll I'll concede that point. Very good, very good philosophical precision there. But, I mean, in general, when you have a personal relationship with someone, in your mind, you're not, like, mixing them up with other people. Think about that. That's exactly what people do with our Lord. They start mixing up our Lord with with the sodomite priest. They start mixing our Lord up with um, the corrupt bishop, cardinal, anti-Pope Bergoglio, even, even Pope Benedict Ratzinger. They start mixing these, these discrete individual people up. And it's, it's about the worst possible person that you could confuse for somebody else is God Almighty himself. And yet I think that's, that's so much the problem of what's going on and what people are constantly doing is they're mixing up these human beings with our Lord. And it, it isn't even within the context of the church. Um, people, people lose their faith if they're like, for example, sufficiently abused by their spouse. Um, if abuse is so bad, um, some people will, will lose their faith in God because of a betrayal or, you know, a physical abuse or whatever by a spouse. Um, being betrayed by a friend, um, being betrayed, you know, you can make a, by an employer, you know, um, that people, it, it grinds people down and grinds people down. And then people lose faith in God because they've been scandalized by someone that they either loved tremendously or admired and respected tremendously or whatever. It's this business of confusing other people up with God and confusing also kind of in a similar vein, the supernatural uh, church, the holy spotless bride of Christ up with this institutional church, which at this point is probably at the lowest point. I'd have to think it's probably at the lowest point it's ever been in terms of just overall morality and, and just a loss of the faith. I would say it's in the top five or bottom five, uh, to say (laughs) the least, but in terms of confusing somebody with, with God, you know, color me surprised that, uh, infinite or finite human beings could not apprehend the total nature of a, of a infinite being and therefore could possibly confuse somebody else with God. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little sophistic about it, but you know, the, the idea being that we can't understand God, we can't completely understand or you're even, even partially understand. I mean, it's, it's the, the impossibility going up to St. Augustine, with the with the, the the apparition of the child on on the seashore in North Africa, running mm-hmm. back and forth trying to pour the entire uh, Mediterranean Sea into this little this little uh, hole, hole. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, Saint Augustine just laughs at him and says, "You can't do that." And he says, "I can do it. Soon. I, I can sooner put the whole sea in this in this hole than you can apprehend God." And mm-hmm. of course, the the apparition vanishes at this point. And he realized, okay, that was that was an angel uh, sending a message to me. But the point being that. Uh, God is infinite, and and we, we we can only apprehend certain things, and and we are told, you know, reliably so that the priests are alter or alter Christus, another Christ. Uh-huh. They stand in place of Christ. They aren't Christ. They they uh-huh. exercise the power of Christ at times during the mass when they take a piece of bread and literally convert it to 
the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. They are exercising the power of Christ, but they are not God. In the confessional, when they take a spiritually dead person and revive them and put supernatural life into their soul, they are exercising the power of God, but they are not God. Right. It's it that just the mystery that human beings can do that, can exercise an infinite power, but be finite in themselves. Yes, the people who can wield that power definitely deserve our respect, even if they are crummy, scummy, sodomite individuals of the lowest order. They mm-hmm. still wield a power that can get us out of hell. Sure, and, and that's heaven. why we're not that's why we're not Donatists, and this we, comes up a lot. But you we know? can't it's, confuse it's, them with God. Yeah. So absolutely true, absolutely true. And um, but again, I think I think what's what's relevant here is to look at like the two things that you just mentioned, which are the two highest examples: the the offering of the holy sacrifice in the mass and the transubstantiation of the host and the chalice to the body, blood, soul, and divinity, and the sacrament of penance of confession of the the absolving of sin. Um, and the passing look, on of that power to do both of the above at holy orders. Absolutely. Look at how few people Catholics look at how few Catholics today actually believe in either one of those things. Isn't, isn't that an interesting point? It's the number of people who be- know about much less believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and the, the holy sacrifice of the mass qua sacrifice in terms of Catholics in the West today is is minuscule. It's terrifyingly minuscule. And in terms of confession, well, obviously, nobody's going to confession. Nobody nobody believes in these things anymore. Hardly anyone believes in these things anymore in the Western church and the the citation that that I can give is walk into any new construction Catholic church um, with with just a, a tiny, tiny handful of exceptions in the Western world and look look and see if there are any confessionals. Catholic churches today are built without any confessionals, whereas if you go into the churches in Europe, um, you know, a, a medium-sized church in Europe will have probably 12 confessional stalls in it. 12, like built into the architecture of the church. Modern Catholic churches today don't have confessionals. And then when people do go to confession, look at what it is. It's therapy. Um, it's, it's, it's the, the person who's quote unquote, making the confession, telling the priest what the, the person making the confession has interiorly discerned as being right and wrong. Um, and again, this is, this is another thing that, that, anti-Pope Bergoglio has put forth over and over and over again that he believes or he is trying to convince the world that the individual conscience is the arbiter of truth and is is the determiner of of morality on, on an objective on an objective level interior to the person. So, you know, it's like Oprah. Oprah's constantly going on about my truth, your truth, all of that. It's all of a piece. It's all the same damn thing. Well, it's trying to convince people that they are in fact God and, and the, that they are the arbiters of truth. The danger of that is that at a certain level he's not inaccurate, but the imprecision is you have to have a properly formed and exercised conscience. If you have that then what he's saying is true. And that's one of the biggest dangers of, you know, that, that this, this is the biggest you know weapon of mass destruction that, that uh, modernism has here is that so many of the things that are said and encapsulated in these little quotes are not when you look at them technically false. It's when you take them in the totality of their understanding, 
yes, your conscience can be an infallible guide if it's infallibly formed and you don't ignore it. So it's easy to, to get to a point where, where you can have somebody saying, say that a good traditionalist could look at this and say, yes, what he's saying technically is not violating, you know, infallible teaching. But you can't I, look at that and, and only go on that. Uh, what I would say is at this point, when we're getting into questions of marriage, sodomy, et cetera, et cetera, um, in particular, these these questions are functions of the natural law. And so I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. I suspect it will be extraordinarily difficult for people to argue that, you know, my, my conscience was malformed by the culture. My, my conscience was malformed by um, the anti-church, by the infiltrators. And I suspect, and what it, the, the terrible fear is that what the response to these people will be when they try to make that argument is, you had the natural law in terms of sodomy. Every fiber of your being from the time you were a child was screaming out, that is wrong. That is wrong, evil, nasty, repulsive, frightening, scary. Put, put whatever other adjective you want to behind it. Every fiber of your being, because I put it on your soul myself when I created you, was telling you that that was wrong. And you had to willfully, willfully um, you know, tear all of that edifice of the natural law down and convince yourself that sodomy was in fact good. And so I think it's going to be difficult for people to argue in, in these circumstances. I mean, it's like the obviousness of the fact that there, we are male and female. There are two sexes and almost everyone is born clearly, objectively, XX female or XY male. Um, you know, the whole argument about hermaphrodites, the percentage of people that have any sort of, of chromosomal issue is so, so tiny. Um, and, I, and I think the default position on that is if, if a person has a Y chromosome, no matter how many they have or how many X chromosomes they have, if a person has a Y chromosome, they're a male. Um, it's, it's not terribly difficult. Uh, but it, it, when it when you get back to the natural law, I think that um, that's why we have it. That's why we have the natural law, and it's held it, it's held Christian society together. It seems to me. Well, there's certainly a, a lot of this we we don't need somebody to teach us about, but you know, Christ, knowing our weaknesses, uh, gave us a teaching church to form our mm -hmm. consciences. And this goes back to the quote we had earlier: "Woe to him by whom scandal comes into the world." But also mm. in that same verse. Christ says, for it needs be that scandals must come. And I'm quoting this out of the Dewey Reams. The King James might say it a little bit differently. But the point being is that there will be scandaling, or there, there will be stumbling blocks put in our way. Yep. It's up to us to not fall over them. Yep. You know, just because somebody else causes scandal. And it reminds me of a conversation I overheard when I was in the Navy. And I wonder if this could even happen today or if the parties would get in trouble. But it, it was a, a um, first-class bosun mate, a, a black one, a uh, black first class boatswain mate talking to a young black uh, E1 brand new guy out of boot camp who was getting on his case for trying to see racism where it didn't exist mm. and saying, and, and I, the, the, the part I overheard and really, you know, I, I took to heart just beyond um, what he was talking about there and, and, and internalizing it for, for just in general. It's like what he was telling this young kid is like, nobody can make you feel or do anything. 
mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have to respond to it. Right. And if it was something out of that you misunderstood and you decide to react, you're the one at fault. And if the person is a racist jackass who says something to you and you decide to, to respond to it, you're pig wrestling. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not doing anything good to respond in a counter racist mode. You don't fight the, you know, this kind of stuff by taking you know, in a, 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 a stumbling block reaction to it. And I'm mutating you know, the, the, the words of the scripture with my faulty memory of the exact words that were said at the time. But the, the, whole, the, the, the quote that sticks out is, nobody can make you do anything. Don't right. take scandal when you shouldn't. And this is, you know, this goes along with we have a responsibility to learn our faith. You know, yes, can the conscience be a good guide? Yeah, if it's well formed, but that's on us to form it. We are supposed to be able to rely on the church for this. But, you know, if, if you know, Father Jazz Hands is not the one who's going to form it, you know, we have these things called books. And they've been around a exactly. long time. Go read exactly. the Council of Trent. Read the sermons of, of, of the doctors of the church. We've got a rich amount of material. It's all freely available online on that little thing you've got in your hand. That, yeah, that, that's you know, right. That's either, has either, either runs Android or iOS. You know, you can access all this right now and form yep. your conscience right now. Stop listening yep. to a couple of yahoos on a podcast and learn the faith. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well said. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> Well, we beat that horse to death. What what should we do for the um, <laughs> for the encore? What should we talk about next? Well, it was in our it was in our notes here to talk about uh, uh, tradition, and um, I, I th- let's go ahead and go for it because because I was I was mentioning that I didn't know if I had a lot of material really for it. So I think this is almost perfect timing. We're at about fifty three minutes. I, I, I okay, think we, okay. we can go for it. And we've we've been talking about, and, and if you're one of the non-Catholics, uh, I, I know our, our, our metals trader refers to himself as, as the loyal opposition, who, uh, <laughs> a Protestant who who is is not um, allergic to listening to Catholic things, but uh, he sort of tunes out when he hears it. You may have heard this term that we throw around a lot called uh, traditionalism or trads or tradies or something having to do with tradition. Um, once upon a time in the Western Church, that is the Church of Rome, everybody under the uh, direct uh, authority of, of, of uh, the Roman pontiff, we all, from about, I don't know, 400 AD until about 1960, we all had a common liturgy, more or less. I mean, yes, there were some differences. Um, the Serum Rite was different. The Gallican Rite was different right. while it was out there. You can still find differences in the Dominican Rite, but essentially they are the same with some minor differences. Yeah. And Throughout history, um, and if you are a biblical scholar who knows the Old Testament, please email me. I'd like to learn more to add to my notes for the future when, when topics like this come up. Um, what I'm going to talk about is just from the time of Christ forward. The idea that Satan being a master tactician, master chess player, master general, whichever way you want to look at this, he understands strategies at work. And it wasn't Julius Caesar who came up with the idea of divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't the first one. It was Satan. And ever since the beginning, the idea of divide and conquer the authentic body of Christ, whether it was uh, dividing Judas out to sell sell out Christ to the to the Jews who wanted to put him to death, um, we were debating this before the show. Does, does does the the rich young man referenced in the Gospels who who was trying to find the path of righteousness, and then he was all in and it's like he wanted to follow Christ, but as soon as Christ said, "Sell everything you have and follow me," my question was. Had, had Christ selected all of his apostles at this point, and was this somebody who was supposed to be apostle, but be an apostle, but could not forsake the riches of the world, and therefore didn't 
uh, answer the call. If you know, if, if you know the answer to that one, please email me. I, I'm, it's Matthew 19. So Matthew it's 19. kind of, it's right. It's kind of right in the middle of things, you know? Um, it's, it's so well, it's I, I have the, to go back and read on either side of it and, and just make sure and see. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's while the original, uh, group, group of the apostles were put, being put together. So he, he may have been, um, designated by God from eternity to have, to have had the chance to be one of the 12. I don't remember. But the point mm-hmm. being, there's always this divide and conquer, whether it's the appeal to vanity, whether it's the appeal to money in the case of the rich young man or Judas. Uh, actually, in the case of Judas, you've highlighted this before. It was, it was actually embarrassment. He didn't, he doesn't believe in any of the BS. He doesn't believe in the real presence. And he, and, and yeah. what Christ was pe- preaching was, was uh, embarrassing to him because he was in it for for the the earthly prestige that was the supposed power, to come along. Power, yeah, power, power. Yeah. He, he wanted to be one of the the uh, disciples of, of of the Messiah and have because the, they all thought at the time that the, the the Messiah was going to establish an earthly kingdom, and mm-hmm. even the other eleven didn't quite gro- uh, figure this one. I almost said grok. That's a technical term for programmers, whatever. <laughs> they didn't quite get this because even after the resurrection, they said, Lord, are you going to uh, restore the kingdom of Israel? I, like, I just see if Jesus ever was going to do a face lap. It's like, have you guys not been paying attention to everything I've been doing here? But and remember um, right before the ascension, I love, I love the narrative of what he did right before the ascension. Um, he upbraided them and upbraiding means getting your butt chewed up one side and back down the other. And he upbraided them for their faithlessness. Yeah, like, that, that's exactly right what I'm talking about right now. Ascended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the idea of there always being this divide and conquer, if you go forward in history a little bit more, you have the, the dividing of, of Orthodox and Christian prior to about the year 1000, when the Eastern church separated from the authority of the Pope, the tur- the words Orthodox and Christian meant the same thing. Mm-hmm, it was, mm-hmm. You know, we were Orthodox believing Christians. Uh, fast forward another 500 years or so, the, the term Christian versus Catholic now becomes bifurcated. Two terms that now, for the loyal opposition, they will they will very clearly say Christian and Catholic mean two different things. Catholics will say they're the same word, essentially. Um, and this gets into also, uh, even though I'm jumping around on the timeline, the whole idea of, of heresies tend to divide, well, they tend, they are, that's about the very definition, they divide the unity of the faithful. So whether right. it's the Protestant revolt saying we're not going to follow the Pope or whatever other uh, causes for the heresy. In the case of the Arians, it was um, a question of the divinity of Christ, if I remember correctly. Yes, But correct. all, all of the heresies throughout time is always about divide and conquer. Even to the more recent times, you know, 200 years ago, uh, Vatican I, the old Catholics refused to accept the, the idea of the definition, I think their thing was was defining infallibility, because this I is this, so, had, yeah. this had never been formally defined per se, and there were some people who didn't fall into this heresy, who or schism, whichever whichever was the right term, they didn't fall into this sect of the old Catholics, who who said there is something dangerous about defining this here because this is something that can be used against us. It was the same thing when Pope St. Pius X, in trying to fight modernism, wrote down and codified, I believe it was for the first time, about 1900, the, the original code of canon law. Before that, it was always church tradition. And church. the understanding being that, that the Roman pontiff lays down the laws for this. And there may have been some codices here, there, and other places, but it had never been put down for the entire church as such. And the problem is, once you put down a code of law, now all of the lawyers... Uh, mm-hmm. the, the satanic bent lawyers can now exploit for loopholes and good yep. grief. There is, you know, that you, you look at the documents of Vatican II. Um, Chris Farrar has got a great write up on uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, what the, 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 the document on um, the, the sacred liturgy. And he's writing this from the point of view of being a lawyer looking for loopholes. And he mm-hmm. is a lawyer and, yeah. he, and it's, 
throughout the document, the formula is that uh, the Latin language is the the heritage of the church, and we should never go, you know, never get away from it. However, in 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 light of uh, due consideration for local customs, every single affirmation of tradition is followed by a however or but or in the case of, which completely undermines. If if you go through every single case where there is a, a loophole defined, and they just take the entire reference out you're ending up with almost nothing left in the document. So you yep. say all traditional liturgies should be preserved, except, okay, you have to wipe that whole item now. Uh, yeah. When it talks about church music, the splendor of polyphony and 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 uh, music Gregorian in the Latin chant. language, except, okay, that whole point, you know, you throw it away because you just negated it, logically speaking. And yep. you, end up, you end up with nothing. So you, you end up with these situations, it's always divide and conquer. And it's, you know, dividing people who look at the documents of having a traditional mindset versus a, a modern mindset or what you want to do with it. And what's old is new again, and this is never going to go away. And, and in, in that previous conversation where it was almost kind of like a, a sparring session of who, who's really the Pope and what's really going on right now, it's, the, the thought that occurs to me, it's, you know, I, I still am not fully convinced that, that Francis is an anti-Pope. But the thought that occurs to me is like if things are so bad now and the degradation you know, from individual morality to the point where we're willing to either accept uh, whatever comes down from Rome or not care, either way is pretty mm-hmm. bad. If this is the dress rehearsal, how bad is the real thing going to be? Yeah. And the yeah. number of souls that are going to be lost because of this, if this is the dress rehearsal, how bad is it going to be? Of course, you look at the gospel and Christ says, when, when I return, am I going to find faith at all? Yep. There are faithful people right now. So I, I kind of take that as, as, as being heartening that he's not coming back this week. So. Well, the thing that scares me right now, and you know, people who who follow the the trad Catholic blogosphere have, I'm sure, heard these rumors. And right now, they are just rumors, but they're significant rumors, and they're escalating about um, Bergoglio drafting some sort of an oath of loyalty to himself personally and to his quote unquote magisterium that he is going to force every priest, bishop and cardinal to sign and, you know, hand into their bishop and then the bishops hand all these into Rome and anyone who refuses to sign it is going to be excommunicated. Now, again, this is, this is just in the domain of rumor, but it's, it's picking up and um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if it happened. And if if this does happen, if Bergoglio does do this, I'm to say that I'm not optimistic is is the understatement of the podcast. Um, you know, so few people are speaking out and the ones that are speaking out are doing it with such timidity and, and so hedging what they're saying um, that. I don't know. I think it just seems to me that it's kind of going back to the chess analogy. You know, I think it's it's um, Bergoglio getting getting his pawns now over to the to the far end of the board and just you know picking up queen after queen after queen, and it's it's going to be really really frightening if this happens. And it might be this this next level of escalation that we're all looking at, where whereas. W- a lot of us are going to be sitting around going, well, wait a minute. Um, it, it, where, where can I go? Is the priest that's offering this mass, is he offering it in, in union with the one true church? Or is he offering it in so, some sort of a hedged partial union with 
an anti-church? What's going on here? And we have to be prepared for this, and we need to start talking about it. And I think that people should start talking to their priests about it. If this happens, what are you going to do? What are your superior? What are you hearing from your superiors? Which I doubt they're hearing anything from their superiors. Um, I doubt any any of the superiors of any of the Ecclesia Day communities have even addressed this at all. In fact, I suspect, judging upon you know precedent of what's happened so far over the past almost five years now, um, I think that all of the superiors of the Ecclesia Day communities, and what I mean by the Ecclesia Day communities, for those of you who aren't familiar with the terminology, um, Ecclesia Day is is kind of a, a an officer, a dicastery within within the Roman Curia that has you know supervision and kind of a, a jurisdiction over all of the traditional Catholic groups, like the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, um, the and Good it, Shepherd, It, it draws its name from the Motu Propria Ecclesia Dei Afflicta, which was issued July 2, 1988, or July 4, one or the other, um, after uh, Archbishop Lefebvre had, had uh, or, or consecrated four bishops. And it was, it was the... Uh, the reaction to the SSPX doing that, and we're jumping way ahead in the notes here, but it, it, was, mm-hmm. it was the the reaction to that act. And if you are a uh, Latin grammarian, reread that and tell me if the excommunication is in the active or passive voice and then tell me what that means. But I'll, 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 I'll let the grammarians go do their work now. Inside baseball. Yes. Inside yes. baseball. <laughs> wow. Good one, super nerd. Um, but yeah, so the, there there is a group and they... they that oversees all of the trad Catholic groups. And, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of passivity and, and, um, if, if this, this ultimatum comes down with these people being forced to juror to Bergoglio as an individual person and Bergoglio's quote unquote magisterium, um, wow, that's, that's really intimidating. And it, it might get to the point where that's when we go underground, where, like, like I've said before, um, if things continue on apace as they are, um, and there's no supernatural intervention, I think that we can expect that we will lose every square inch of real estate. Um, well, and so in, in, in where, case, where will we have mass? In, in, in a case like that, you have to consider um, whether or not you're going to hold fast with all your heart and all your soul to Catholic Rome or to... The modern Rome. Mm-hmm. And some of you will recognize that I am paraphrasing a quote from Archbishop Marcel, Marcel Lefebvre. It's, it's the famous 1974 declaration where he literally says as, as the opening, we hold fast with all our heart and all our soul to Catholic Rome, the guardian of Catholic faith and traditions necessary to preserve this faith to eternal Rome, mistress of wisdom and truth. We refuse, on the other hand, and have always refused, to follow the realm of neo-modernist, neo-Protestant tendencies, which were clearly evident in the Second Vatican Council, etc. And Mm -hmm. I'm kind of jumping around here in the points. I made the whole logical progression from the time of Christ up through about the 1960s, about the, the satanic formula, which works really well. Divide and conquer. It works really well with humans in general. Divide mm-hmm. and conquer. Uh, and just observe any catty click of, of, of women and you'll see divide and conquer in play. And it's not yeah. just women, it's men too. It works the same way. But Not as bad though. Women are women are way worse about that. You said way it, not worse. me. Yep. That's Anne at barnhart.biz. So yep. um, the, the point being is that after, after the Second Vatican Council, and I mentioned the, the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, which was just a massive uh, exercise in loopholes, 
which if you had a traditional mindset of looking at the document, you say, yeah, I, I, I totally am fine with this. But if you are a modernist and saying, oh, they're kicking all the doors open here and throwing away all the locks, I can definitely go for this. It was exactly that clack led by Bunini and the other innovators who mm-hmm. came up with this Novosardo Mise, the new mass in English or French or whatever language you want um, to replace uh, forcibly so the the mass of um, what was it called Pius V or Gre- yes. the Gregorian rite? Pius V uh, uh, codified it in 1570. That's a pretty good legacy. But even in that document, if I'm not mistaken, he was saying this mass goes back to time immemorial to at least the the pontificate of Saint Gregory the Great, with no significant change. And so, remember. Um, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich in one of her vision in her vision of the Last Supper, and again you, nobody is is required to believe this, but she she sure seems awfully awfully credible in light, especially in light of the events of the last five years. She said that when she what she saw at the Last Supper is that you know kind of after after the the, the mass was done, um, our Lord took Saint Peter Saint. James, James, John, and St. John and took the three of them off and taught them and taught them how to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass. And she said that she completely recognized it as being the, the, the Gregorian rite. She totally recognized it. And she was thoroughly modern being in what, the 1800s? Uh, was she the 1800s or was she 17 or 18? Let me see. The, the point and being, she's, she was after the 1500s, and I say thoroughly modern in the sense that it's the same mass you would see at any traditional Catholic um, mass location. Uh, she was born 1774, died 1824. Right. So the, the, right. Point, the point being, it was the same mass that was codified by Pius V. Yes, yes. It was, it was almost exactly what any of us who go to the trad mass now she she had the, basically for all intents and purposes the same mass that we have so i'm i'm jumping around here so the the idea being that after vatican II, these documents were codified and passed and many reforms started taking place as a result of the the documents of vatican II. one of those reforms being a complete rewrite essentially of of the rite of the mass led by bonini and it was implemented in 1970 Prior to that coming out, the original draft of this, I'm going to say it was in 67, that the draft of this was available for theological review and study. Cardinal Ottaviani and a, a group of theologians put together the, a, a critical review or critical response of the liturgy called the commonly referred to as the uh, Ottaviani or Ottaviani, depending on how you want to pronounce that, uh, intervention. So if you Google or Bing or however you search things on the Internet, Ottaviani uh, intervention, let me write that down as a link. <laughs> Um, you'll see this very precise um, theological critique of the the liturgy of the mass. And this is before even things like the priest facing the the, the people. That even wasn't even in there. But breaking down- And guys, the Ottaviani intervention was absolutely scathing, scathing. And and as Super Nerd just alluded to, what what Ottaviani was critiquing and, and his critique was scathing was what if anybody in the Novus Ordo church saw, you know, in the Western Novus Ordo paradigm today saw it, it would probably be the highest mass that they had ever seen in their life. Meaning, you know, ad orientum, et cetera, et cetera. In Latin, the whole, the whole nine, it would be the highest mass that anyone in the contemporary Western Novus Ordo paradigm would have ever seen in their lives. And Cardinal Taviani 
absolutely shredded it. Because it basically breaks down the catechism. It goes back to the old Benedictine principle of the, the law of prayer is the law of belief. And the whole idea of the liturgy is to reinforce the faith. So in the act of praying, you're reinforcing your beliefs. So the idea that the priest is separated from the people has his back to us because he's not turning his back to us. He's turning his face to God. He's offering on behalf of all of us. It reinforces the notion that the, the, the holy orders are a special power granted to a few people. Right. Um, it, the new mass totally breaks this down. We're a community. We're standing around a table. We're all looking at each other. We're dialoguing. Um, the, the attitude of how we, um, how we re- revere the, the sacred species of, of the, of the consecrated host and in, in the old mass, you always, there, for one thing, there's silence that that's a big mm-hmm. thing right there. You don't talk in the presence of God. Um, there's there's all the the reverence of you know women having their head covered men should be dressing up in their sunday best you have the genuflections constantly um catholics get ridiculed for this we're constantly genuflecting and standing up well yeah it's because we believe that god is right there God's we're right giving there. Him respect <laughs> um uh, the holding together of the thumb and forefinger after the consecration of the host in order to keep any particles from falling anywhere. That's why you see, you know, those images. If you've ever seen an image of a priest pushing his his index finger and his thumb together with his other three fingers up straight, and you think, what is this hand signal? It's not a hand signal. He's he's protecting because he's just consecrated the host and had it between his thumb and forefinger. He's keeping his thumb and forefinger together so that if there are any particles or crumbs of the consecrated host, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on his fingers, that they don't just fall all over the place. That's what that is. From the moment of consecration until after the communion, when the, the altar servers literally wash the, the, in any particles from his fingers into the chalice, which the priest mm-hmm. then consumes, he is uh, assiduously aware of keeping those fingers together, lest any particle fall, because... They believe that even the yeah. smallest particle is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's why when you go to the old mass, the altar server has, is holding a patent under everyone's chin as they're receiving communion. It's Yes, it's in case you drop the host, but particles. I mean, I served mass for years. I uh, only one, one or two times ever had a situation where the host actually was caught by the patent because somebody wasn't you know paying attention or whatever sticking their tongue out far enough yeah every single time every single mass at the end of communion there were particles on on that that uh on that patent it doesn't matter how how careful the priest is how uh careful the people are as they're receiving there will always be particles there because well because the priest is separating his thumb and forefinger at that point to release the host onto the person's tongue particles fall and each one of those particles no matter how small that contains the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And for you people who have severe reactions to uh, gluten, you know, all you need is a slight particle. So you don't have to have, you know, special permission from the diocese to get special host and all the rest. Just get a particle. It's fine. Just talk to the priest. You can, you can set this all up. But, but the point being is that, that all of this rich significance from the liturgy, from uh, the language, the fact that no matter anywhere you went in the world, you could always go to a mass in Latin. Um, yeah. Yeah, when I, when I was in high school, before I decided to change uh, ambitions in life, I, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And one of the things that you, you had to do was to interview with, um, I forget what the name of the person is, but somebody who was a Naval Academy grad who, who could uh, present your, your, your packet and endorse it as having been a, a Naval Academy grad or whatever. But somewhere in this conversation came up the, the topic of the Latin Mass, and this guy didn't know it still existed. This is the early 90s. 
And he, he, he made this, he was telling me this story that as, as a naval officer, he, they were visiting Sweden or someplace um, and, and um, uh, wandered into a church and there was the mass in Latin, just like back home in Iowa. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> that's the yeah. way it was for almost 2000 years, dude. So it, if you, it, if you haven't had the chance to, to go to Europe, for example, I mean, really travel, get to where you're on in a different hemisphere, other side of the planet. When I went on my pilgrimage to Rome, I mean, I counted how many hours between when I went to mass, um, the morning before I left and got on the plane, the plane was at 3 p.m. So I go to morning mass and then count and calculate how many hours it is from going to mass in, you know, the suburbs of Denver to being at mass in the center of Rome that like the next evening. Um, and it's, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same mass every single word is exactly the same. And so the, this amazing sensation of being somewhere so utterly foreign going from, you know, the suburbs of Denver, um, to, to the heart of Rome, um, walking in the footsteps of, of literally St. Paul and all of the saints, St. Philip Neri, so on and so forth in these churches where, you know, a church that was built in, in the, the 17th century is called the new church. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. So you're in this wildly different cultural situation and you walk in and you go to mass and it's exactly the same and you're home and you belong. Now imagine having that happen if you go on pilgrimage to somewhere like Vietnam or something like that. You're, you're in a culture that's, I mean, just, it isn't even really in, in conventional parlance, it isn't even a Christian culture anymore. You're, you're in a, a basically a non-Christian part of the world, but you can still walk into a Catholic church. And if they're saying the old mass, it's exactly the same mass. There's no interruption in the calendar. It's the same feast schedule. Everything's the same. You just, you just continue life apace. And the sense that I actually belong to something. Whereas think about it in the Novus Ordo, even if you go, um, to a different parish within the same archdiocese. For example, going going to mass in Denver at you know Saint I'm making something up Saint Philomena's versus Our Lady of Good Success. And again, I'm making up the names of these parishes. The the liturgy can be so radically different. Everything about the whole thing is just completely different, and it is by definition. The Novus Ordo is about, you know, the priest asserting his will over the liturgy and improvising and talking and the personality of the priest defining everything and, and saturating everything to where you go in, and even if you're in a Catholic church, you feel like a complete foreigner, you feel like you don't belong, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is absolutely inexcusable. And it circles back to the point, divide and conquer. Well, I, I don't feel comfortable here. I don't belong here. Well, this isn't my parish and this isn't father so-and-so's mass, blah, blah, blah. There should be absolutely none of that. This unity, this sense of unity 
is is so tied up with the liturgy and the same thing with the divine with the divine office it used to be that you could walk into any church all over the world and you know they're praying the same vespers and they're praying the same compline and everything's the same all the psalms are the same all the antiphons are the same everything is exactly the same so no matter where you are in the world you're connected you are you are tangibly connected to the 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 institutional church and more importantly to the supernatural church and that's just that's just utterly lost now completely well, and totally lost and, and an, another phrase i want to build on and, and you don't have to travel to different churches within an archdiocese if you want to show up at any given building uh, uh catholic church at 6 a.m on sunday and stay till 10 at night you're going to see a world of difference between the conservative early the more lax yep. whatever the life team and then the life thing team mass yep but going back to the, let's just stick to the all trad mass all the time kind of thing. And, mm. <laughs> and whether you're walking into a mass in suburban Indianapolis or uh, Indonesia or in the jungles of Africa or in, in, in a, a magnificent uh, cathedral in Europe, it's the same words. It's the same liturgy. And we've made, actually, you've been the one who's used this phrase more than, more than, more than I have, that when you attend the mass, you are present at a warping of space and time. That mm-hmm. during the mass you are at the foot of Calvary, you at, at with Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Your eyes aren't going to show you this, but that's why you have the eyes of faith. It, you know, you can't see that the bread turned into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ either. I mean, forget your lying eyes for a minute and just look at the eyes of the faith. When you are at the Catholic mass, you are at 33 A.D. in Jerusalem at the foot of the cross, mm-hmm. and the fact that you know before the change in the liturgy, the masses were the same anywhere in the world. The rubrics were more or less the same, but the words were the same. The calendar was the same. Everything was the same. Was this reinforcing the fact that there's a difference between the eternal spiritual reality and the temporal world you just stepped out of? So regardless of whether you're in, you know, wherever you are, I made all the this distinctions just now. I mean, you, you could be in Japan and walk into a Catholic church and it's no different than any place else. And it is that sense of universality that used to be there. And it went away. It went away. And so the, the, the Otavia interve- intervention was, was a critique, not even of all of this. It was just assuming everything was going to be in Latin and, and some of the degradation of yeah. the teaching through the, through the mass. And one of the contributors to the Ottaviani intervention was uh, an archbishop named Marcel Lefebvre. He had been the um, superior general of the Holy Ghost Fathers. He was the personal delegate of Paul, the, not Paul, um, L- Cardinal Bay, wasn't he? <laughs> Pius XII. I knew I, I, knew oh, I had the right oh. consonant. Um, Pius XII. He was the personal delegate to uh, of the Pope to all of French-speaking North Africa. He had experience in starting and running seminaries and building entire infrastructures of running dioceses. And and so a- after the changes that were happening after after Vatican II, he, he was at retirement age. He was in his mid-60s or early 60s at this point. And his idea was, I'm going to go retire this is this is nonsense. This is nuts. I, I can I can just find a convent someplace and just offer the mass and prepare myself for eternity. And I don't remember exactly what, what how the story link came that somebody sought him out, but uh, there were groups of seminarians at this point in time who, uh, as as of course all the changes were hitting the seminaries as well. They go from learning the Latin, learning theology, learning Saint Thomas, and all all the classics that have been done for a thousand years, two thousand years almost. And saying, no, we're going to do something completely different. And I don't even know what all they were doing. Uh, and that doesn't even get into the, the, the immorality and, and the pink mafia. But there, the, the traditional leaning uh, seminarians were being driven out or leaving. And, and 
but they still felt the call to the priesthood unmistakably saying, yeah, I've, I've got this call. What do I do? I can't go to the, the regular um, seminaries. And, and mm-hmm. several bishops said, go talk to Marcel Lefebvre. And he wanted nothing to do with them, to be honest. He said, look, I'm retired. This isn't something I do at this point in my life. I, it, it, and and it, a, a series of events happened where uh, in, in a cone, Switzerland, uh, it was an old, uh, I think it was a seminary or it was definitely a house of religious worship, but it, uh, I forget which order it was, uh, was being sold. And there, there was uh, a, a, a um, nightclub developer who was going to buy it and turn it essentially into a house of debauchery. And the, some locals heard about this guy bragging at, at a local inn or a, lo- a local restaurant. This is what he was going to do. They were incensed by it, group pooled together and bought the property. So he couldn't. And then they're like, what mm-hmm. do we do with this? And so they started asking around a priest and bishops and they said, well, there's talk that this um, Archbishop Lefebvre might, might uh, start something. And about this time, Lefebvre had been praying. It's like, look, God, if, if I'm supposed to be doing something here with training seminarians, you know, in his mind, it's like, okay, if I'm supposed to do something, give me a billion dollars, you know, have, it, have somebody just knock on my door and give me all this, you know, the resources for it. You know, it, it's, it's like the ultimate long shot prayer. Have somebody show up in a, in a Ferrari with a gold suitcase and all the money and all the rest. Well, he gets a knock on his door saying, um, Monsignor, we were told by the local bishop that you might have a use for this facility we bought. <laughs> He's like, yeah, um, I've been asked okay. by some people to start a <laughs> seminary and somebody just gave me the property. He's like, I think this is a sign. So they started training, training seminarians. And of course, he didn't do this as a maverick. I mean, he, he was a he was a doctor of canon law, a doctor of sacred theology, um, an expert in setting up, you know, all the organizations that a normal diocese and, 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 and houses of, of education need to have. He had permission of the local bishop in, was it Toulouse? Not, not Toulouse. I forget the exact location, but his local bishop, he had permission. He had um, preliminary permission from Rome even. And they all thought this is great. We need to keep the traditional uh, ways going. Um, 1974 comes along and a couple of apostolic visitors from Rome come to visit Icone and they made some just incredible statements to the seminarians, really shocked them and scandalized them. Well, they shouldn't have taken scandal from this. We were talking about it earlier, but mm-hmm, saying things mm-hmm. like, you know, within a few years, we're going to have married priests and, and, um, you know, the, the, just denying one thing. I mean, they, they would have been fitting, they would have fit in Rome really well right now. Let's put it that way. Right, right. And that's what prompted this, this statement in, in uh, November of 1974 from Archbishop Lefebvre. And it was, it was just a, a, a re-buttressing of the faith to the students there at Econ, it's like, look, we are not leaving the faith. Whatever these people from Rome are saying, they cannot change the faith. The faith is eternal, and we are steadfastly uh, going to preserve the eternal faith that has always been taught by Rome. And if these people in Rome now are teaching something else, then that's not eternal Rome. That's not the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll settle out the, 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 the specifics and differences as we have to address them in the future. And that was the beginning of where there was a rift between what was happening happening in Icone and what was happening in Rome. Obviously, there were forces in, in, in Rome saying, we can't allow him to start making traditional priests. This is not going to be a good look for us. We're trying to overturn all of tradition. We're trying to start this new springtime, this new Pentecost, and whatever else they were calling it. People want this. And if, if he's allowed to succeed, we're going to have problems. So... Prior to the first ordination class of 1976, uh, the word came down, you're not allowed to uh, ordain priests. You are suspended ad divinis. Now, 1976, this is important to reference for people for canon lawyers. This is, we're operating under 1917 canon law. Remember I mentioned that Archbishop Lefebvre was a canon lawyer. Immediately appeals this. He knows that, that 
the 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 basis for for this argument was now uh, the the ruling you know you're suspended had no basis and if somebody had knew of something or if if they really thought in Rome that there was basis for this let's adjudicate it so um, appeal immediately goes in under 1917 canon law as soon as the appeal goes in suspensions are void mm-hmm. therefore mm-hmm. no suspension and the, it was just left the unaddressed. Or, the ordination of priests may go forward unless you get a new suspension and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so do you know what the disposition of that nineteen of that uh, appeal from nineteen seventy six was? Mm-mm. It's still it's still pending. <laughs> yep. So yep. and and I, and I bring this up because um, we we've mentioned before in in, in the in previous podcast a, a a blog reply I made to something you wrote uh, five and a half years ago, mm-hmm. and there was a line in there. That, you know, I don't frequently quote myself because I'm not that brilliant, um, which is why I think that I was given a particular grace to write this line. But the the status of the Society of St. Pius X, it is a matter of confusion and calumny. Ever since 1976, when the suspension of Venus came down, it was immediately appealed and therefore null, and it's never been adjudicated. Same thing now, with... Now, if, if I may interject with regards to, um, with regards to ordinations... I'm sure that you have an explanation or commentary on this. And that is the fact that when a man is ordained to the diaconate and then to the priesthood, that he is required to have what's called a demissorial letter from his local bishop, essentially saying, yes, it's cool. You, you can ordain this young man. I certify that he's not. And this is, this is the irony of ironies. I certify that he's not essentially, um, a Freemason, a heretic, a sodomite, anything like that. Now, re- this is this is a punchline at this point, but it's still part of the law that when a young man is ordained by a bishop who is not his local bishop. Um, so let's say, for example, a young man who is born and raised in, making something up here, New Orleans, um, is going to be ordained let's say, making something up in the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, he gets a, a demissorial letter from his bishop in New Orleans saying, yes, you have my permission to um, ordain this young man. This is this is one of the big, big, big critiques that I hear the case that people make about the SSPX is that they've just kind of, historically, they've kind of blown off the whole demissorial letter thing. And a lot of people find that extremely problematic vis-a-vis the um, ordinations. It makes the ordinations um, illicit, but they're still valid. There's a big difference between blowing it off, saying we're not even going to bother trying, versus making the inquiries and being blown off by the people on the other end. Mm, Good point. Good point. And the society has always tried to follow the rules in this regard. Uh, They, Like I said, they, they had the proper... Yeah, and set up from the get-go, the, the understanding was that the priests who were going to be ordained would be incarnated in those dioceses right around Icone where there was so much support from the bishops who were saying, yes, do this. We, we, we want, we want the, all the priests you can make. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, influence from Rome changed that. Now, the, the, to, the, to the status of the demissorial letters, I, I don't know the exact details there. But the, the point being is that the, there, was, you know, there, there was a change in Rome in the mid-70s the status of the society was no longer a clear cut, you know, it was no longer black and white. I mean, Rome mm-hmm. said you're suspended. Um, <laughs> the appeal was filed and still pending. In 1983, we've got a change in canon law, which becomes interesting here in a little bit. 
1988 comes along. Archbishop Fev, like all human beings, gets older. He's getting closer to death, and uh, he started this whole process in the early 70s. At the in the early in his early 60s, he's he's knocking on death's door. He's not doing. He's not in great health, and the tradition, the traditional movement, did not have a problem of of, of a lack of vocations. It was the the only problem going forward is who's going to ordain them if Archbishop Fev dies, and right. they. It's not like there was ever any cessation of dialogue between Rome and 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 Icon, uh, the, the Society of Saint Pius X, um, in in terms of trying to uh, alleviate the the situation of confusion and calumny, as I referred to it before. Uh, th- there has always been uh, an ongoing process to to get things you know legitimized, or by lack of a better word, or normalized, or full communion, or whatever term you want to use. Uh, Archbishop Feb was always a loyal son of the church and wanted to, you know, it, it broke his heart that things ended up the way they did. But anyway, so the, the, we get to a situation and, and um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, was the point person during all of these conversations through through the 80s up through 88 with the Society of St. Pius X. And they had an agreement several times. And every time they tried to, you know, consummate and, com- and complete it, something would go wrong. Somebody would say, mm-hmm. oh, no, we're going to add more conditions to it. And finally, the, the conclusion was reached. Is like, look, we're not dealing in good, you know, we're not being dealt with in good faith. So, citing the fact that we have a clear crisis in the church right now, the faith is in deep crisis. We the, mm-hmm. the, the the priesthood is in crisis. It is essential for the church, for the priesthood to be to be maintained, and for that to be maintained going forward, there needs to be the sacramental ability to continue to ordain priests. Therefore, mm-hmm. I'm going to ordain the bishops. Okay. The motu proprio ecclesia dei afflicto, I mentioned this earlier, was the passive voice excommunication of Archbishop Fev, uh, Bishop Castro de Meyer, who was the co-consecrator, uh, and then the four bishops who were uh, consecrated from the ranks of the, the priests of Society of St. Pius X. The way the, the rules work in 1983 canon law, and this gets into a whole situation of, okay, are, are you going to be a canon lawyer about this or not? And what's the highest priority here? Obviously, the highest priority here is the salvation of souls. It's the faith. And yeah. you've got to have the priesthood to save souls. You've got to have the priesthood to effect the, the, the sacrifice, the altar, to bring the souls back from the dead in, 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 in the confessional. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the law can be your savior, too. Even it, under under 1983 canon law, even in a subjective case where you think there is a, a a crisis in the church, even if you're objectively wrong, but subjectively you think you're right, the law the the, the penalty of exorcism or an exorcism uh, excommunication doesn't apply. And yes, appeals were filed on that too, and it it became moot when Benedict the Sixteenth again in passive voice um, indicated that that the excommunications do not apply anymore. Mm-hmm. Look at those mm-hmm. documents carefully, you Latinists. Um, so the, the, the point of, of the, the article I was making, uh, in reply to you was, was that, that, um, or one of the larger points was that from my perspective, I don't think, you know, based on what has happened in the church since, uh, July 2nd, 1988, where a group of seminarians and priests left the society of St. Pius X and became the nucleus of the fraternity of St. Peter. And mm-hmm. that is a group that has just exploded, uh, in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, vocations and, uh, support. There were a lot of people who were very sympathetic to the Society of St. Pius X prior to that, prior, prior to the formation of the Fraternity of St. Peter, but they couldn't overcome the allegations that these people are schismatic. They don't. They they believe they're their own pope and all the all the rest of it. They weren't sure. 
once the fraternity of St. Peter comes along, no problem. So there was a huge group of people who immediately flocked them and overwhelmed their ability to provide priests and sacraments and all the rest. Uh, so you have other groups like the Institute of Christ the King, Institute of Good Shepherd. I don't know how many there are at this point. Half a dozen, a dozen, four dozen? I don't really know. But there was a, a blooming effect of, of tradition being uh, authorized in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the official church. And it's not like the Society of St. Pius X has had a lack of vocations either. So it's one of these things you judge the fruit by or the tree by its fruits. Uh, I'm pretty sure that somebody with ultimate authority said that at one point in time. And, yes. <laughs> and, you, and you look at what has happened in the church with in tradition and teaching the faith. What has happened as a result of, of the actions of Society of St. Pius X and the thing, the people who were either part of them at one time or, or were attracted to tradition through them and then uh, became the, the nucleus of the beginning of, of the Ecclesia Dei group. I'm not going to canonize one side or the other. I mean, my ultimately one of my, one of the points I made in there is like if you don't if you're not comfortable with the Society of Saint Pius X, don't go there. They're not your only option. There's the right. Fraternity of Saint Peter. There's the Institute of Christ the King. There are diocesan priests every day who are deciding mm-hmm. I want to learn this Latin Mass thing and 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 start doing the 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 way things were done prior to the 1960s. Yep. You know, so if if you don't if you're not comfortable with the idea of going to confession to a society priest or attending one of their marriages or something, then don't. Don't worry about it. They're they're not your only option. And if we ever are in a situation where they are only your option, you know, there is this thing. Uh, actually, I'm not going to go. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. It's a, the, the whole topic of supplied jurisdiction is a, is a minefield. And I am not That's a canon another lawyer. Episode. <laughs> I am not a canon lawyer. That's not going to be an episode either. Uh, uh, if you are a canon lawyer and would like to talk to me, I'll put you on my other podcast for that one. We can have a discussion about it. So, Well, I think what has to be said at this point about Archbishop Lefebvre is look, looking back, he did what everyone should have done in in the wake of the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Mass in the wake of Vatican II. He did what everyone else should have done and stood up and said, nope, sorry, we are are not going to go down this road because it's clearly, clearly wrong. Would that it were, would that it were that, that every bishop or even just, my goodness, even just a few dozen had stood up and done what Archbishop Lefebvre did. The other thing to say is that if you do go to the Trad Mass today, you you owe Archbishop Lefebvre a debt of gratitude because it is it is because of him and because of what he did that we have these Ecclesia Dei communities, as Supernerd just said, um, that that uh, Pope Benedict did issue. Uh, the motu proprio sumorum pontificum and and attempted to further liberate it. And I mean, it's in terms of sumorum pontificum, obviously there are bishops that are openly defying um, sumorum pontificum and oh, they are not allowing, say again? From day one, they were doing it. From day one. And first and foremost among those um, is Cardinal Bergoglio of Buenos Aires, who, who just completely thwarted the whole thing and regularly disobeyed Rome. Um, and so, you know, we, we have this and because of that, or I should say the other way around, because of what Archbishop Lefebvre did, that's why we have these things. There wouldn't be any of that if it weren't for what he did. He was the first link in the chain. He's the one who kept it going. And yes, absolutely. He was a good man. And like super nerd said, he, I think he was absolutely heartbroken about the way it all developed and how, how confusing and disordered it all got. Now, in terms of my position on the SSPX, obviously over the last five years, 
it has evolved. I, I do not now go to the SSPX just because it's not, it's not close. Um, I, I have access to Ecclesia Day masses. And so that's fine. Um, he, here's where I was coming from, especially five years ago. What I noticed in the wake of my Koran burning and the notoriety that I received online is that I started getting a tremendous amount of hate mail and I started being sent links to things on the internet that were written by people in the SSPX that were just, I mean, red red flags immediately went up with me in regards to the SSPX. Some of the most hateful things that have ever been sent to me via email or posted about me on the internet have been posted have been posted by people in the SSPX or even in like the SSPV or you know SSP one and a quarter or whatever you want to call it <laughs> um saying you know rebuttal or commenting on me about my my looks how ugly i am big horse teeth oh yeah um, because that has massive theological significance Say again. Because that's got massive theological significance. But but it's it's indicative of something. It's indicative of something that you know you're if you're going to mass every day and you're this pious Orthodox Catholic, why in the world are you going online or sending someone emails directly, raging at them about how physically ugly they are? And the other huge thing was, oh, she's clear. She's clearly a Jew. Because uh, apparently, because I had dark hair, um, I was coloring my hair dark at the time. Dur. Well, and you were in the financial fin- markets. At being in the financial markets and also accusing me of being a sex pervert, namely a lesbian, because why isn't she married? And and this was it was so funny because they would talk out of both sides of their mouth. And on one side, I was so horrifically ugly and had these horrible horse teeth and crazy eyes and ugliest woman ever. But on the other hand, why is this woman who's physically attractive and intelligent? Why isn't she married? Well, she must be a lesbian. I mean, th- this became so common, and I saw so much of this that red flags went up. And then it it is absolutely true. That within the SSPX, there there's a huge spectrum. Um, there's people who are who are absolutely fantastic, just fantastic, the salt of the earth, filled with true Christian charity, excellent, excellent, excellent people. And then there's people all the way on the other side of the spectrum that are just crazy, that are you know shape shifting lizard Jew conspiracy theorists. If if you know people who are arguing that if someone would just kill all the Jews, then all the problems of the world would be solved. I mean, it's the whole gamut. It's the whole gamut. And so you see this and you're just like, oh, this is this is throwing up some pretty serious red flags. And one of the reasons why Super Nerd is talking about this and why I'm so grateful to him for talking about this, I, I think I really think Super Nerd has an important, a very important place in this discussion in total out there in the world. Um, he's in his 40s, Super Nerd is, is in his 40s, and he was actually born into the SSPX. I, I, well, do you no, mind if I say that? I was born before the SSPX got to the United States. Ah, okay, okay. I was, so, I was born before the first ordination class. Right. You were born, but not too terribly long before. So Super Nerd has lived his entire life. And in fact, you were confirmed by Archbishop Lefebvre, were you not? First communion and confirmation from his hand, yes. Nice, nice. And so 
Um, and I think Super Nerd has mentioned before that, that you know, up until you were an adult, right, where you, you accidentally stumbled into some Novus Ordo mass somewhere and you didn't understand, you didn't recognize it, that it was a mass because he'd never seen a Novus Ordo mass. It's, it's, a, it's a really rare thing for someone to be, you know, in your 40s as you are. Um, and have to have lived your entire life in this and to provide the perspective of someone who's never been in the Novus Ordo paradigm. And so the other thing that's wonderful about Super Nerd is, um, do you mind if I, if I refer to you as, as being um, an ecumenical trad who's hated by everyone? Do you want to explain what that means? Yeah, I, I, get, I get a little bit of grief on that one. I, I actually don't go to the SSPX on a, on a, on a weekly basis at the moment. I, I, I'm in a geographic position where I can go to other options. Uh, mm-hmm. The society is one of them. Society of St. Pius X, that is. Uh, but they're not the only ones. It's, it's, I, I live in a city where there's also the Fraternity of St. Peter. There's the Institute of Christ the King. There's, a, there's at least two or three diocesan Latin mm-hmm. masses as well. Um, I'm fortunate in that perspective. And um, I, it's one of the reasons I wouldn't want to move from where I am right now. There, there's, there's a, a, a redundancy of, of being able to find good priests. And so the joke is with Super Nerd, no matter which, um, no matter where he goes, people are, are looking at him askance, you know, the, the, the SSPXers look at him askance because he goes to the, because he goes to Ecclesia Day masses. The Ecclesia Day people look at him, look at him I'm askance because that they know that he's, he's come out of the SSPX and he occasionally goes to SSPX masses. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a little joke, but there's also, as with all jokes, it's kind of funny because it's true. Divide and conquer going back to our original theme, you know, Although after a while people just being to realize I'm just me and, and they, they ignore it. Uh, the point being that, uh, I, I mix and mingle between groups without, uh, human respect or giving much of a concern because, I don't know. I, I've I've been oblivious to things like this half my life, and and um, honestly, it's a grace for which I'm thankful. Yeah, I think I think I was just getting ready to say that. I think it is a grace, the ability to just kind of be able to fit in with everybody, and and to not be uh, either of your own volition or by exterior oppression, just ghettoized in a certain sense. Just yeah, be able to to mix and mingle with everybody, and. Um, I think I think you do a great job, and I, I appreciate you bringing that perspective and the history of the SSPX, and obviously being able to explain and talk about these things because it's it's coming down to it, and it, if it hasn't already, I certainly get a lot of emails about this. Is that where where do we go? What do we do? Is this okay? Is this cool? Da 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 da. And so you know, we really need to have serious adult grown up conversations about this and get the actual true historical perspective, what exactly happened, what is the deal, um, you know, no, nothing and no one is perfect, obviously, and so we're not saying, I mean, even if you go to any of the Ecclesia Day communities, it's parish by parish, some some are better than others, um, there are some, you know, these communities have been around, around long enough that there are getting to be Every once in a while, you'll get a priest who kind of gets a kind of a cult of personality going, and that's not so good. And uh, bad things happen. The um, priests are human too, and they they need our yep. prayers. And I, I think I, I I referenced the a phrase from a priest in a few mess or a few sermons, few sermons, a a, a <laughs> phrase from his sermon a few episodes back, saying you know warning people don't compliment me too much on my sermons. I might start believing believing it. It's it's my skill, and I'll lose my soul in the process. 
Yeah, so, right. Exactly. That, so, that said, one of the more powerful phrases I remember from any sermon and any priest was actually at a SSPX chapel where, where the, the priest opened his sermon. And I can't even remember what, what I just know it was during the summer because it was hot and they didn't, very, didn't have air conditioning. But um, he, he opened the, the sermon with, um, traditional Catholics don't go to heaven. Saints go to heaven. And your mm-hmm. being in this church right now guarantees you have nothing but a harsh judgment. Yep. And so That's right. whether you, it doesn't matter where you go to mass, ultimately you've got to have sanctifying grace. You've got to know your faith. You've got to have a properly formed conscience and follow it. That's what's going to get you into heaven. Right. I, I'm so glad you said that because it, it speaks directly to our Lord's words, to whom much is given, much will be required. Obviously, any of us who have, you know, by the grace of God, ended up finding the old mass, um, obviously, we have been given much. We have been given, you know, the pearl of great price. We, We have been given this this liturgy, which is just the pinnacle of, of Christ church and, and so on and so forth. We have been given much. And so, yes, you want, you have to understand that because we have been given much, we are going to be held to a much higher standard, a much higher level because, because we understand, um, with, with so much more intensity, um, about the disorders, you know, the, the more you advance in, in the spiritual journey, in the walk, as you advance, advance in sanctity, um, you know, your sin, your sins become in a sense more serious. They're more serious for doing less. So for example, you know, priests will often say when they go into, into monasteries, cloistered monasteries or whatever, and, and they hear confessions of like, little old cloistered nuns, they, they refer to it as being, you know, stoned with, with popcorn, but understand that for these people, they are, they are so advanced in sanctity that just having even, even the most fleeting thought or feeling of, you know, unjust anger or jealousy or irritation or whatever, these people are so, are so holy and they've advanced so far that even the most minor, teeny tiny things, they they need to sacramentally confess those things. Things that for all of us, you know, I've written recently about how, you know, there are nine points in the Mass in 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 the Rite of Pius V. There are nine points in the Mass where, you know, venial sins can be forgiven, where it's explicitly said, forgive us our sins at, at one point or another, nine times in the Mass. And so for us people who are just struggling through life and are and are not terribly holy at all, you know, our venial sins of having angry thoughts or impatience or whatever, um, those venial sins can be can be forgiven at those nine points during the mass. And then there's all kinds of other times when your venial sins can be forgiven, saying the table blessing, just saying the Our Father, and on and on, praying the rosary, on and on and on. There's all kinds of things. But for these people who are super duper holy, even the smallest thing, they, they've got to get into the, into the confessional and confess it because they are so holy, the gravity of, of these sins becomes amplified and magnified. And that, in a sense, projects back down onto us, those of us who have found the old right. Now, people listening to this might say to themselves, well, goodness, that sounds like I'd be kind of shooting myself in the foot. Maybe it would be tactically more advan- more advantageous for me to stay in the Novus Ordo and stay dumb and to not learn my faith. I mean, come on, come on. 
that that's ridiculous and you know it. If you, if you love our Lord, you, you want to know about him, you want to know everything about him, and you want the best, you want to offer him the best and offer him the best liturgy. So, you know, tr- that's very legalistic saying, well, I'm just going to intentionally not learn anything so that I'll be held to a lower standard. Come on, man, that's being totally legalistic, and, and you're shooting yourself in the foot right there. Well, not only that, but even if you manage to avoid hell uh, using that tactic, uh, you're, you're ignoring the fact that you're, you're missing a great opportunity here. I mean, how have you ever wondered what it would be like to go back to apostolic times when there were only a handful of Christians in the world and you could have joined with St. Paul and St. Timothy and the original uh, people spreading the faith and, and have a hand in, you know, from the ground floor, essentially, help uh, build Christendom. Um, look around. We're there again. Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is a point a lot of people get— uh, circling back to what we're talking about. People get scandalized. Why is this happening? Why is our Lord permitting this to happen? It's, he's permitting it to happen because he loves us so much that he wants us to give he wants to give us the opportunity to do this. He wants to give us the opportunity to stand up for him, to defend him, to re-evangelize the world. That that's pretty that's pretty incredible. That's pretty awe-inspiring. It isn't it isn't because he he, you know, hates us and is abandoning us or anything like that. It's like, I love you so much. I'm going to let this happen so that you can show me how much you love me. I'm going to, I'm going to be passive here for a moment because the only way that the human heart can truly be happy is when it is loving God. And I'm going to give you an incredible opportunity to manifest that love for me. Um, and, just remember that it, this is all this is all a manifestation of his love. He's giving us this incredible chance to just to openly, openly, radically, publicly love him. Well, it's not like the opportunity to spread the faith and, and uh, to you know spread a good example or, or to shine your truth from the candlestick ever went away, even in the most Christian and Catholics of times. Um, I, I would imagine that at the height of Catholicism, uh, at the height of the church, you probably still had issues of people snapping at each other and just basically being humans and, and having all the same vices and falling into hell for it along the way, too. It's not like at the height of Christendom, um, we didn't have a lack of church doctors saying that the majority of Catholics mm-hmm. went to hell. Yeah. If that's what it was at the good times, I mean, it's not like it's not like we've ever been absent of the opportunity to spread Christ's uh, message and, and, and help others. So I think we have a double podcast almost. I think we do. We're coming up on two hours, aren't we? Wow, that's a good one. Well, um, I'll leave it um, to your discretion if you want to cut it in half and post part one, part two, a couple days apart. We'll we'll just uh, make this a down payment in case we have to skip a week or something. So, indeed, indeed, indeed. All right. Well, we should probably wrap her up. Yep. Uh, and, and actually, this is a good time to do this, uh, to have a double edition. I, I can work on this in the morning. Uh, the last couple of podcast episodes have been asking for uh, prayers for a special intention, and it was to, it was to find a job, actually. It was, uh, and and uh, I got an offer for a job yesterday, so I'll be starting that uh, next Monday. So I, I have the opportunity to uh, pick this up, the editing job up in the morning and publish this in the morning. Um, this was supposed to be the, the test rehearsal of being able to do the whole uh, record and edit and, and publish all in one night. And then we decided to, to do a two-hour edition. But, uh, so much th- for that. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, this, this is good timing for it. Uh, but uh, let's see if we can keep it shorter in the, in the weeks to come. But uh, thank you for, to everyone who uh, prayed for that intention. Um, thank you very much. It, it, things worked out really well. 
Uh, other general reminders, feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors are Monday through Thursday in the Gregorian Rite. Um, mm. Please join your intentions with the priests offering those masses, and please remember to pray for them as well. This podcast is a super nerd media production. I would like to thank Mark D and James R who mailed in donations. Thank you very much for your generosity. And if you'd like to learn more about how to support this project, you can learn about that at supernerdmedia.com. Uh, the Matthew seventeen twenty initiative, regardless of who you think the Pope is, I think you can agree we've got a bit of a crisis in the church. Please commit to fasting and doing some kind of penance to, for the resolution of this uh, sooner than later. Um, any parting thoughts or ideas? Uh, re-expressing my gratitude to all of my donors. Thank, thank you all so very much. And also, I want to give a shout out to the folks who are buying the cattle marketing DVD. Thank, thank you so much for that as well. Um, and uh, 16hourmba.com. 16hourmba.com. And, uh, and be assured of my prayers every day. And um, just my, my humblest gratitude to one and all for your munificence. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. Bye.